You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 329, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Jason is making his second return to the podcast. Jason Sweat is a developer, speaker, author, and host of the Rails with Jason podcast. Jason enjoys helping other developers get better at programming through speaking and writing. He has spoken in several countries, including the United States, India, the Netherlands, Bulgaria, and Nigeria. Jason lives in Sand Lake, Michigan with his wife and two kids. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So listeners, we're going to change it up a little bit. I will not be starting with Jason's origin story since he actually appeared in episode 252, which was actually the second episode I recorded as host. So I highly recommend you listen to that episode. But instead, Jason, what has changed since 2018? Um, One of the things that's changed is I got a new job. I changed jobs. Um, That was in the fall of 2018. So I've started working with a doctor. It was kind of an, I won't get into the whole thing necessarily, but it was kind of an interesting story. I got this email out of the blue one day. This guy's like, Hey, I'm a doctor. I found one of your blog posts and I wondered if you could like provide me with some mentoring. And I'm like, uh, this doesn't really sound like it's a real thing that's going to actually work out, but whatever. And long story short, I ended up having a phone call with the guy and we're still working together now. So we've worked together for Coming up on two years now. That's incredible. So was the doctor himself technical or did he just see something that you said that really struck a chord with him? Well, the thing is, he had hired a couple programmers in the past to try to build an EMR for him, electronic medical record system. The first person didn't work out. And then sometime later, he tried again. And then the second person didn't work out. And he was basically like, screw it. I'll just do it myself. I'll teach myself to code and be a doctor and a programmer and just build this whole thing. So he was actually going down that path at the time he he contacted me. But he told me later that he read my blog post and he like could tell that it was different from the other stuff that he had read. It was like it was like spelled things out more clearly and stuff like that or something. Somehow he he found it to be different. And then his original plan was that he was going to do the coding and I was just going to kind of hold his hand while he did it. But then I did a small project for him and he discovered that like he gave me, we agreed on like a list of things to do. And then I actually did like all five of the things on the list and did it when I said I was going to do it and stuff like that, which like for anybody who's ever hired anybody to do anything, that's like a rare experience that the person you hire actually does the thing they were hired to do without problems. So he was like impressed by that. And then um, he's like, you know what, let's actually just have you do the work. And so that's what we've been doing for the last almost two years. That's amazing. And I just really love the approach to that. I mean, technical hiring is so difficult. And so he basically vetted you by paying you to do a consulting project. And he was able to see that you were going to be a good fit, probably both technically wise and culture fit as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to do it. If it's possible to do it that way, to hire somebody for a short project Then if that goes well, do a little bit bigger of a project, if that goes well, and so on. And it's it's good on the other end if the person has the luxury of being able to do that too, because then you can kind of see 
do I, as the employee, enjoy working this with this employer? And you both can feel it. It's, it's like totally crazy, I think. Um, you go on these job interviews and you have maybe like one to five conversations with somebody. And then you say, okay, I guess let's work together for the next five years or whatever it is. It's kind of like going on like two dates and then deciding whether you're going to get married. It's so difficult. I completely agree with you. And you're absolutely right. And so I think there are so many companies out there who are trying to solve it and just quite hasn't happened yet. But I'm really glad that you came across such an amazing opportunity and that you were open to it. Because I think we have all received random emails like you got and have ignored them. And so it's just a reminder to the listeners that maybe you should take a chance. Yeah, yeah, I, I think there's like, you should be skeptical but also be open-minded because the fact is that most of the time when I get emails like that, it doesn't work out and the person's not actually serious, but that doesn't mean that's going to be the case 100% of the time. And obviously in this case, that was not the case. Well, I'm not surprised that he found your amazing content. As a lot of the listeners are familiar with, Jason maintains an excellent blog and puts out a lot of great thoughts, but he also invests a lot into podcasting. So I'd love to ask you, Jason, why did you get involved in podcasting? Yeah, mostly because it's just fun. I really enjoy being able to talk with interesting people and ask them interesting questions. Um, it's like there's no other way almost that I could have an opportunity to talk with the kinds of people I talk with other than having a podcast. And it's really surprising. Like people are sometimes impressed, like, wow, you had Sandy Metz on your podcast or whatever. Like it's this big achievement and it, and it is, but all I did was ask. And like the vast majority of people I ask will just say yes. And so it's amazing to be able to talk with these people. And then I kind of form personal relationships with the guests to an extent. And then we see each other at conferences and kind of become friends and stuff like that. So it's like a great shortcut to being able to meet really interesting people. I agree. One of the funniest experiences I had was at the most recent RubyConf where I was speaking to my friend and someone turned around and they're like, I know that voice. <laughs> and that is a weird feeling, but it also feels like really great that you, you have listeners out there and you get to meet them in person, which is really great. And I love getting to meet the people I've had as guests on the show. It, it almost becomes like this alumni network that you now have. Yeah, you and I, I don't think have met in person yet. So I'm looking forward to whenever that opportunity is, whenever the world starts having conferences and stuff again. Agreed. I am determined to find you by voice and not face. So that will be my goal. Yeah, that'll be funny. We're both like standing in, in groups. We can't see each other. Oh, wait a second. I hear Brittany Martin's voice. <laughs> so speaking of podcasting, how do you think we as hosts can increase the diversity of guests on our podcasts? And how come it can be such a challenge to locate those diverse guests? So that's a really big question that could probably fill multiple podcast episodes because um, there's multiple different kinds of diversity and there's different reasons for wanting diversity. Um, so there's obviously like racial diversity and there's ethnic diversity, which is which is a different thing. Um, there's gender diversity. There's diversity of different opinions and experiences and viewpoints and all that kind of stuff. Um, and all those kinds of diversity are are different and we want those kinds of diversity for different reasons. And so the way I look at it is for my podcast, I just want to have the most interesting people possible on the show. 
And so if I find somebody who's interesting, I invite them on the show and I don't discriminate against people who don't look like me. And I do make a little effort to try to, I don't want to only favor people who fortune has already favored, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so that's my take on it. Yeah, I have a couple of different tactics that I do. One thing that I try to do is when I attend conferences, and this could be in-person or virtual, I like to actually get to know the attendees of the conference that are excited about the talks that are being given, because those tend to be the people that are very passionate but haven't put themselves out there yet. It's really easy to book a speaker for a conference that's someone who already has put their content together and has taken a particular stance on a topic, and they might already be well-known in the community. But in order to find some guests that haven't gotten to do a podcast yet, because I think you're the same as me, Jason, I love it when someone premieres on my podcast as as their first experience and making them feel comfortable and getting to share their ideas to the world. And that tactic has kind of proven pretty well for me. Yeah, same here. I really enjoy having people on my show who have never done a podcast before. Sometimes I don't even know. They say afterward, that was my first podcast ever. And it's like, wow, I would have had no no idea because he did such a great job. Um, yeah, it, it can be tough to find guests in general because like the easiest way to find guests is like somebody who has written a book or somebody who speaks at conferences, somebody who has like put out a signal in some way that says, I'm the kind of person who talks on podcasts or something like that. Because like, if you have a book, chances are you would enjoy going on a podcast so you can promote your book. Or if you give talks at conferences, okay, you're a person who talks, so talking on a podcast is natural. It's a little bit awkward to reach out to somebody who like doesn't have a book or they don't give talks they have no signal at all and you go and say hey do you want to be on my podcast i don't know what we're gonna talk about but like do you want to and when i've tried that in the past it hasn't always gone that well because it's like it's not very natural and you don't know that they want to be a podcast guest so it's a little bit hard to find people who who would be good podcast guests who aren't already raising their own profile no, I agree. I actually had a encounter at RailsConf this past year where I had an attendee come up to me and tell me what a big fan that he was of the show. And I asked him if he would like to be a guest on the show since he was just so excited about it. And he's like, well, I don't have anything to talk about it. And I'm scared. And it turns out he ended up working for a company that I highly respected and I hadn't had anyone from that company on the show. So that alone was interesting to me that I could bring him on. But then I also offered for him to bring on a partner. And so he brought on um, his coworker onto the show and together they, they were a really strong guest. And so offering the ability to have a partner, while granted can be a bit difficult juggling in a podcast scenario, but if you can pull it off, yes, you can You can definitely grab some more people in. You just need to make sure that each person is getting their fair share. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what I wanted to bring you onto the show today, and this was your suggestion, Jason, which I loved it, is that you have a very popular blog post about all of your best programming tips. Now, um, we will, of course, link this in the show notes. We're not going to go one by one on each one. I'm going to pick out a couple that I think are interesting so that we could have a discussion around it. And of course, listeners, if you have any thoughts around this, please tweet us both, and we will include that in the show notes as well. 
But uh, let's start with this first programming tip, which is articulating a goal. So could you explain that one, Jason? Yeah, I think it's easy to fall into the trap of wasting time by just like chasing this rabbit, chasing this rabbit. And if you step back and say, if somebody came and, and looked over your shoulder and asked like, hey, what are you actually trying to do right now? Uh, a lot of times, if you don't have an answer to that question, then it's like, what are you even doing? So like anytime you're coding and you're feeling like lost, like you're just flailing around, it can be helpful to step back and say, hang on a second, what am I actually trying to do right now? And I catch myself doing this when I'm just like messing around and not getting anywhere. I'm like, hang on, what's my goal again? And often the problem is that I don't have a clear goal. And so just saying what it is that I'm trying to accomplish is so, so helpful. And even going to the extent of writing it down can be really helpful because then it forces you to really be clear. See, I read this one in terms of a group context or a work context where I'm given a ticket that might be very vague. And so when I look at the ticket, I don't know what I need to do here. And so I have all these clarifying questions that I need to do. And what I try to do is once I can get those into a more technical format, I like to rewrite the ticket with the product manager's, you know, acceptance on that. So that way I can clearly articulate that goal. Ah, yeah, that's interesting that if I saw a story that was too vague, I would look at the story and say, this story is not what I call shovel ready. So shovel ready just means that it's like ready to, to begin work on it. Um, and throughout my career, I've, I've had a lot of instances of the, of the challenge where I get a story and it's not shovel ready. Um, and I, I think a, that's kind of the role of a scrum master if you're working in an, in an agile methodology to go through the stories before they get to the point of being assigned to developers and making sure that they are sufficiently crisply defined to actually be worked on. One of my tests that I, that I do on stories when I, when I look at them is I ask, if we gave this to an external QA person, would that QA person be able to read what's in the story and know what manual tests to be able to perform to know that this story is done. And if that's not possible, then it's very likely that the story needs to be more, made more crisp, including a, a very clearly laid out definition of what it means to be done with that story. That's great. So moving on to the next tip, keep everything working all the time. And this is one that I have definitely failed to do before, where I've had to do a massive refactoring and I realize halfway through that the behavior of my code has changed. Tests are failing. I'm not sure which part of the code I've changed that has caused this issue. And I end up having to kill the branch and start all over again. So what's your tips around that? Yeah, that's painful. I've definitely had that experience myself a lot of times in the past. And that's why this is one of the one of the top tips in the sequence, because in, in my career, this one has burned me a lot of the time. So there's not much to say about this one other than like, keep everything working all the time, which means like make a small change, and then test everything. It is really helpful in these cases, if you have 
good test coverage on your entire application because what I will do is make a small change, a very small commit, maybe if it's even just a one-line commit, and then I'll push my commit up to CI and I'll let the tests run on the whole application. I don't necessarily always wait for the whole entire test suite to run before I continue my work because with my application right now, my tests take like 20 minutes to run and I'm not going to just sit and wait for 20 minutes while that's happening. But I'll make a small change, push up to CI, make a small change, push up to CI. There's a little delay, but that way at least if things start breaking, I know the exact small change that made things start breaking so I can um, so I can know what the culprit is. And then also in addition to, to the CI thing, because that's a, a little bit peripheral, um, I will make a small change, then like go into my browser and manually test. I'll make a small change and then run the test case that tests that exercises that line of code. And if that passes, I'll run the test that the whole test file that tests that whole class and stuff like that. Um, because yeah, if you if you work for like hours or days and let things stop working, it's so much harder to go from not working to back to working than it is to just keep everything working the whole time. I completely agree. And this actually touches upon the next one. So the other day I Googled the concept of atomic commits and you might know this, but you were the number one result on Google search. So oh, that's wow. pretty exciting. <laughs> so Jason, could you explain what an atomic commit is? Yeah, it's a commit that is only one thing. Um, so, hmm, this is interesting. I, uh, I find myself wanting to read my own blog post so that I can answer this question more, more intelligently. Um, but I'll, I'll explain how I do my own commits. Um, I don't usually do more than a few minutes at a time worth of coding. I don't usually do more than a few lines. Well, maybe like five to... 50 lines is the average size of, of my commits, and I try to stay more toward the like 10 or 20 lines into the spectrum per commit. Not that lines is like a hard metric that I adhere to, that's just how it happens to work out. Um, and when I'm, when I'm coding in front of people, like when I'm teaching a class or something like that, the students are often surprised by how frequently I commit. Like sometimes I'll just change one character and they'll commit it and they'll be like, isn't that like so much overhead compared to the amount of work you did? But no, what I'm doing is I'm keeping my commits atomic because like, for example, if I change a piece of configuration in my application and then I work on this unrelated feature and I spend like 20 minutes and then I commit that thing I commit the feature change along with that unrelated configuration change. Then what if that configuration change causes a problem later? I might be doing my debugging research and discover that this commit introduced the problem, but to me it looks like this commit is this feature that I added, but really it's this configuration change that's buried way in it that's really not obvious and that's unrelated to all the other code I changed. So it makes that debugging a lot harder. So when I commit, I'm not necessarily always committing for the sake of the change that I made. I'm committing for the sake of whatever changes I'm gonna make next. 
I want to keep this small change separate from whatever change comes after that so that each commit is only one thing. So again, that makes the debugging easier. And if you ever need to roll something back, I had to do this just the other day where I made a change that my boss asked me to do, but then the next day my boss said, actually, can you put it back to the way it was before? Because my, atomic, because my commit was atomic, all I had to do was revert that one single commit and it was super easy to roll it back. That's great. It's something that I have especially struggled with is to do atomic commits because I am definitely a type A personality. And so it really kills me to push up something that's partially done. It used to be when I first got started, I would, an entire ticket would be one commit, which you're right. It makes it so dangerous to roll things back. There were a lot of times where I would have to erase a lot of my work just because of one mistake. And so I think this is a really great concept. I think a part that I do have a hard time with is if I do make a one character change, am I putting too much effort into that commit message to indicate that I made that one character change and how can I make that process faster? Do you have some uh, tips around that? Well, I think it's less important for the commit to be clear, for the commit message to be clear, if the commit itself is really small and easy to understand. So like, like if that. you literally made a one character change, the commit message could just be like, did stuff, even, that's a, even though that's a horrible commit message, it's not a big deal in that case because it's like, okay, did stuff. Oh, I see it's just this one character change when you look at the actual details of the commit. Um, when it's more important to explain what's done is those meteor commits where some, some important behavior is actually changed then the commit message I think is more important. I love that. So on the next one, this is one that I definitely relate to is don't allow yourself to stay stuck. And in this one, you recommend sometimes going down the wrong path is way more productive than standing still. And I can definitely vouch for this. They, I have done many Hail Marys where things are just not working. And I'm like, what if I did this crazy thing? And sometimes it's really panned out for me. And even it's almost like sitting on the highway when there's been a bad accident and you can't move at all and somehow getting off the highway and even driving the opposite direction just so that you're moving again, it can really just help spur like those good intentions towards your programming. So any more thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, there's some like psychological phenomenon where like the longer you stay stuck, the longer you probably are going to stay stuck. And, and so to just keep moving, even if you're moving in the wrong direction, it just like knocks something loose. And I guess, well, here's maybe the thing. If you're stuck and you're just sitting there staring at the screen, you're not doing anything. And so you're not learning anything about what you need to do. But if you start banging away at it, even being fully conscious that you're not doing the right thing, you'll be learning something. And a lot of times the only way to figure out what the right thing is to do is to do the wrong thing or the right way to, the only way to figure out a good solution is to do a crappy solution first. And so I'll just, whenever I'm stuck, I'll just try to do something, even if it seems dumb. And quite often, if it seems dumb, it is dumb and it doesn't work. But in the course of doing that, I say, oh, wait a second, that gives me this other idea, and then I'll go do that. Maybe that doesn't work either even, but it gives me a new idea, and so on. But if you just sit there and like try to think, 
you're probably not going to come up with with any new ideas and if you can't if you just can't imagine what to do at all like you're genuinely like completely stuck then what i do when i um when i'm in those situations are well that's my whole next section of my my blog post and my debugging tips um but long story short i will look online uh, i'll try to research the problem area maybe i'll grab some books and read about it i'll talk to some people again just anything i can do to knock something loose and try to figure out a path forward I love that. And you're right. I was about to go into the debugging section. So the concept of favoring Googling over thinking and your your argument here is that mental energy is a precious resource, which it really is. There's this idea that programmers should be able to sit down and code 12 hours at a time, and that's just not possible. And so conserving that mental energy and really using the resources out there of the developers before you who have solved these issues is so important. I know I have definitely thrown my hands in the air and celebrated that this one comment on a GitHub issue or something has solved this problem that has plagued me for weeks has been just a massive help. So um, I, I love that idea as well. Yeah. Yeah, this is something again that actually a lot of these tips came from my most recent experience of of teaching a certain class. I noticed the students making certain mistakes over and over again and so I collected those mistakes into these tips. And one mistake that I see with with newer developers all the time is an error message will appear and the person will look at the error message and try to think, "Hmm, what does this mean?" then like go to the code and try to figure out like Hmm, what could be wrong and and just sitting there and trying to think and I guess like the sitting and thinking has its time and place but in a surprising proportion of programming endeavors sitting and thinking is like really not a good thing to do um, so what I think is the right thing to do when you get an error message don't think like preserve that brain power and just copy and paste it into Google because it's probably some like well, here's the thing, like the actual error message you get rarely has anything to do with what's actually wrong. Usually it's something else. Like if you leave a comma off of one line, it'll give you some other error that's related to whatever the next line is. Like it never actually tells you that you have a missing comma. Um, so that's that's something to realize is that the error message rarely has something to do with what's actually wrong. And so yeah. if you like fixate it, fixate on it and think about it, it's just going to lead you down the wrong path. So I always just copy and paste it into Google and that usually um, tells me what, what's wrong. And I do want to mention uh, something more about this mental energy thing because that is a, uh, it's something that I think about a lot and I think is really important. Sometimes people say things like, I just wish there were more hours in the day, but for me, I feel like I run out of mental energy way before I run out of hours in the day. And like, it's, it's like an hourglass that's full in the morning or something like that. And it gets used up throughout the day as mental energy is expended. Um, and often I run out of mental energy, maybe at 5 PM, but maybe at like 1 PM or something like that. And so I don't want to run out of mental energy at like noon. So I take great care to not 
waste mental energy on mundane things. I want to save it for the really important stuff. So don't think about those error messages when you see them. Just Google them. And if the answer is not on Google, then maybe you can think about it then. But try Google first. I love all of that. I think it's important to be in touch with what kind of person you are and where you get your energy from. I know for me, uh, I like to take a break midday in order to work out or to bake or do something just so that I can refill that mental energy again. And often when I take those breaks, I actually will have epiphanies around the code that I would was working on, but I wouldn't have gotten if I just sat there and stared at my laptop. And so it is so important to conserve that mental energy. And I agree with you. Like, I definitely run out of mental energy at a certain point and I realize that I'm just spinning my wheels and I'm not being productive anymore. And so that's where you want to have those secondary tasks that you can default to where you can read up on something, catch up on a podcast. It's also difficult too because we're all working from home and we no longer have that commute time in order to regain that mental energy now. So now we're expected to be able to work during that normal commute time and often that can deplete our mental energy even more. Yeah, this is such a weird time. Like everybody is like way more stressed. I, I, me and my boss have been talking about this. I, I keep telling him that I'm like 20% dumber than normal, maybe even more than 20% at this point. Because everybody is just like, things are not normal and everybody has so much more stress. And when you're, I'm pretty sure that it's like a psychological truth that when you're stressed, you get dumber. Um, and like, I'm not joking about that. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure that is actually true. And that's probably a good thing to take into account as we're all working right now. Like recognize that this is not a normal time and that we probably shouldn't hold ourselves quite to the same level of expectation that we normally would. I completely agree. So we're going to close out on one that is kind of controversial because this tends to be a bragging right on Twitter, and that is how many tabs you have open at once. (laughs) (laughs) So I love closing tabs. I am not a fan of starting a new browser session and having 30 tabs open. I like to purposely open and close tabs. So why did you note this in your programming tips? Well, first, this is like a bragging thing on Twitter. Oh, yeah, for sure. People brag about how many tabs. Like, if you don't have at least 20 tabs open, are you really working? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's completely the wrong idea. To me, that's akin to like, hey, I worked 85 hours this week. Uh, look how productive I am, which is which is not true, obviously. Um, yeah, the tab thing. So this goes back a little bit to the mental energy thing. I kind of think of my brain is being analogous to a computer in the sense that it has RAM and ROM. And if I try to juggle too many things in my mental RAM, then I might fill up my whole mental RAM. And and at the moment it gets 100% filled up, everything gets lost and my mental RAM gets cleared. And then I have to start over again. So each tab that you have open has a mental cost first people might think i'm crazy by saying this but like you having the tab open like you know the tab is there and i believe there's something in your brain that is like remembering like oh remember that i have that google drive tab open remember that that's important remember that and it takes up a little bit of that mental ram um and then the other thing and this makes me so incredibly furious when it happens. I'll be like helping somebody with a programming problem or something. 
they'll make a code change, then they'll go back to the browser and be like, oh, whoops, that's not the right tab. Oh, okay, it's this tab. Oh, no, that's not, not, not the right tab. Okay, it's this one. And it's like, dude, just close these tabs because it, it does cost something to have to go and find the content of that tab again, but the cost of having to go and find that tab again is much less than the cost of having a bazillion tabs open at once. Couldn't agree with you more. Well, Jason, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. How can listeners follow you? One place, codewithjason.com. That makes it so easy. Well, it was so great to talk to you. And listeners, as you finish this episode, we are giving you permission to close the tab. And if you have any ideas on how we can be bringing diverse guests onto our shows, please reach out to Jason and I. All those links will be in the show notes. Great to talk to you, Jason. Great to talk with you, too. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review, and thank you for listening.